Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, the Governor's Office and State Politics Reporter at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me this week at our Arizona Capitol Bureau are... Ron Hansen. I cover the congressional delegation. Ryan Randazzo. I'm a business reporter. Dustin Gardner. I cover the state legislature. This week on The Gaggle, was Proposition 123 legal? And there's a new investigation into allegations of sexual harassment at the state capitol. But first, a lot of questions remain about self-driving cars and the environment that Governor Doug Ducey has created here in Arizona for this industry. Ryan... You went through a trove of records uh, from the governor's office that detail a pretty cozy relationship between this industry. What did you find? Well, we certainly were aware that the governor was welcoming to self-driving cars and Uber in particular in Arizona. Uh, What the emails uh, first reported by The Guardian showed was that Uber had actually tested its self-driving cars on Arizona roads without telling anyone in the public, um, and the governor knew this. And they did that four months before they had a joint press conference announcing that Uber was bringing its self-driving cars here uh, from California. So uh, Arizona had served sort of as the guinea pigs for this self-driving technology without their knowledge. This has been, you know, a, a, a policy decision that the governor has touted. And he's been, um, you know, he's been applauded by libertarians, the Koch brothers, the uh, people who don't like regulation, people who like innovation, does it have the potential to backfire? Well, on the other side of that coin, there's been lots of public safety advocates who said, maybe we should test this on closed courses until it's absolutely proven to be safe. The goal of these cars, or one of the goals, besides making money through ride shares, is to improve safety on public roads. But uh, they are the companies are adamant that they need to test it on public roads to get to that point. So we're not there yet. Clearly, there was a fatal accident in Arizona on March 18th. A pedestrian was killed, and they were killed by a car that was on the roads for no other reason than to test this technology for Uber. Can you kind of take us through the emails? I mean, what, what were the most interesting tidbits that you learned? Well, I, I, I think just the big one that they were here. Um, We knew at the time that Waymo was testing self-driving cars here. Waymo was extremely cautious about public perception of its program. They had reached out to us ahead of their launch to ask, you know, what did we think the public was going to say? How how was the public going to react? And I, at the time, was like, I don't know. This is your technology. You're the ones uh, releasing this. And now we know that as Waymo was doing this publicly, Uber was here doing the same thing. And we still don't know where they tested it uh, because they wouldn't release that information. But they were testing it secretively without uh, notifying the public. They did notify the governor's office. And according to the emails, they notified Phoenix police. But I'm not sure if they actually notified Phoenix PD or Tempe or Scottsdale because, to our knowledge, they hadn't tested it in the Phoenix area When they came here publicly, they started running their cars in Tempe and Scottsdale. And that brings up another question is that city officials don't even know who was testing in their in their city. We learned that when we reached out to Chandler and Tempe yesterday. They were also sending suggested tweets that the that could be sent from the governor's uh, 
uh, Twitter account uh, that kind of creating this echo chamber of um, congratulatory messages about themselves and the governor's office seemed to be okay with that. Yeah. And I think to be fair, that's pretty common for businesses to do. There was a big dust up with Jan Brewer and a, and a controversial mine in Florence and they had given her talking points. I mean, it's, it's a pretty common practice where a company, especially a high tech one that uh, you know, legislators or governors not going to know a lot about are going to feed um, feed talking points, and then that's what ends up uh, being regurgitated to the media. But those emails did show a extremely close relationship between the governor's office and Uber. Uber even offered to make a workspace available for the governor's staffers in San Francisco, but apparently the staffer didn't take up that offer. The governor's administration looked like they were trying to push back pretty hard on the Guardian story. Uh, on Twitter. I mean, what's their answer to all of this? Well, Ducey issued an executive order in 2015 that was very welcoming to self-driving cars. It, it He convened a panel of experts not to look at what regulations we needed, but to make sure we didn't have any regulations that would prevent that industry from coming here. So his staff was saying yesterday that the Guardian story was not a big deal, that Everyone in Arizona should have been well aware that there were self-driving cars on our roads because Ducey welcomed them here in 2015. Uh, I think the counter-argument to that is, sure, we might have known that we had welcomed them or our governor had welcomed these cars, but to this day, we do not know how many companies are here, how many cars they're testing on public roads, how many of those cars actually have a safety driver behind the wheel or not, and where are these geo-fenced areas that the technology companies are testing this on the public? And that is information that you have asked for through an Arizona public through the Arizona Public Records Law. Well, it's information I've asked for from the companies going back to 2016 when they first launched here. So to say these companies are not secretive is just incorrect. They won't even tell us the most basic information about how many cars they've brought to our state. So I've asked the companies repeatedly. I've asked the governor's office. I've asked the Department of Transportation. Nobody's able to provide that information so far. Ron, in May 2016, the governor successfully pushed a ballot initiative known as Proposition 123 to help fund schools. This came at a time when he was under pretty intense pressure to adequately fund schools, not as, as, not as much pressure as he's under now, um, but he was under pressure nonetheless. This measure tapped the state century-old land trust fund, uh, which Congress created when Arizona became a state. Interestingly enough, a federal judge, Neil Wake, uh, who is uh, very well known and has a pretty good reputation, decided that uh, Arizona had invaded the trust fund uh, since Prop 123 passed back in 2016. And he seems to think that we needed Congress to sign off on this before uh, the state started tapping about 350 million or so to, to send to schools. What what else did the judge have to say and what was the reaction to this decision? So the judge took a fairly dim view of the argument that the Ducey administration put forward as to whether congressional approval was needed. That was essentially the, the critical question uh, before the judge. Um, it wasn't enough for the voters to pass this. It also required separate congressional approval. And that was the argument. Judge Wake agrees with that argument. That was something that the Ducey administration felt was not necessarily 
not necessary because of a 1999 amendment to the land trust fund uh, that voters also made and also impacted by uh, the 2012 uh, Prop 118 uh, measure that passed that also dealt with the way that the money that was taken from the land trust fund was calculated. Um, so given that history, there was um, a ruling by the judge that said that actually you do need separate congressional approval. As it turns out, that approval came um, a few days before Judge Wake's ruling in this matter and just the, in the past few days. So the question is, what happens with the money that has been paid out for basically two years um, without the congressional approval? Um, at this point, the judge wants more information. He wants to be able to uh, understand more about what this congressional approval that they just granted, what it encompasses, and the history on these things. And um, what it means is right now there's more than $300 million in land trust monies that have been paid out improperly in this judge's mind um, that may or may not end up having to be essentially put back by not taking more money out of the land trust fund as it had been previously planned. I should add that this could be uh, appealed. It also could be that the plaintiff walks away if he were so inclined. But um, for the moment, there is at least a ruling that essentially um, says that the land trust fund needed uh, congressional approval that it did not get, contrary to what the Ducey administration said all along. This could not have come at a worse time for the governor's administration, right, Dustin? Yeah, definitely not a good time for him. I mean, this this came as this Red for Ed movement, you know, teachers demanding better pay, better funding for schools. Um, that movement has just descended on the Capitol Wednesday night. There was a huge rally, several thousand educators and their supporters chanting outside the Capitol. Um, their big demand is a 20% raise. Um, that sounds like a huge amount, but it would still bring Arizona, um, it would still leave Arizona below the national median pay and below some surrounding states like Utah and New Mexico. Um, the governor's office responded to this demand by basically not addressing it directly in a statement Wednesday night. He said that the state has been improving funding for education. He's still going to keep working on that, but he didn't directly address their demands. But overall, this has not been good optics for the governor. You have these teachers on his doorstep demanding better pay, and he's just not responding directly. I mean, I think his decision to not respond directly is in line with a pattern of um, other responses to other recent controversies, including Uber, where this lack of um, hardline answers and lack of like really any stances and kind of more mealy mouth responses is creating more problems for him than if he would just come out and address people directly. Am I am I wrong here? I mean, I, that sounds right to me. And I think you also see that too with the March for Our Lives movement, you know, with the students demanding better gun control laws in the state. The governor has refused to meet with those students. They continue to basically, you know, troll him, demanding a meeting. Um, and then, you know, it, when he put out his plan on gun safety, he did not d directly call for universal background checks. Reporters pressed the governor's advisors on that pretty pointedly, and, you know, they were often just kind of dancing around that issue, and that kind of continues to dog the governor in discussions about gun control laws. You know, and I, I would say, too, that I think that as much as anything, the governor's responses have to be shaped by his own beliefs on these matters, but also the, the ideological, uh, you know, 
boundaries that he has set out and and objectives of his administration. Look, this is a guy who has said that he wants to lower income tax to the lowest, as low as reasonably possible, uh, with zero as being uh, an ultimate objective if he could do it. Um, at the same time, you're talking about just with this Prop One Two Three ruling, a three hundred million dollar loss of revenue, perhaps uh, that they might have to forego in future payments from one, two, three in the worst case scenario. You also have uh, with this 20% uh, pay raise uh, asked by educators, you know, a substantial uh, blow to their budget plans that the governor wants less revenue in some ways at a time when there are incredible demands for far more revenue. Um, I don't know what he can say to reconcile those two very different positions. And when you look at where the public pressure is coming from, he is seeing in, in you know, many ways this tidal wave of public pressure, especially on education, augmented by movements like uh, Save Our Schools that are creating uh, electoral pressure on him come this fall that you can't just be uh, at odds with the education community and hope to get a second term, um, and yet you can't placate them with uh, significant raises and promises of more money without having a, you know, a way forward with revenue. And from their perspective, I think they would say, like, you know, we could go out there and say, all right, we'll meet you halfway. Let's 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 do ten. It would never be enough, probably in their view. It, it wouldn't be enough to placate teachers. Yeah, and I mean, the governor's office has emphasized that teacher pay has increased, according to the state auditor general, um, from t 2016 to 2017, there was a 4.3% increase in salary. But, you know, the teachers are looking at that and saying, you know, th th this sort of meager boost is not enough. I mean, th you know, they're pointing to comparisons to other states, and, you know, Arizona is at the bottom or near the bottom on teacher pay, and that's just a fact. Going back to Prop 123, talking about the, the political optics here, this uh, decision by the federal judge came on the eve of uh, a press conference that had been set by uh, Ducey's, one time at least, nemesis, Jeff DeWitt. This pretty much served as a mic drop, I would say, for him on his way out the door to, to the Trump administration. Yeah, DeWitt probably didn't use the full opportunity to trash the governor that he was afforded there. The media showed up at his press conference expecting a bloodbath. He actually started off uh, thanking his staff, uh, touting his accomplishments. He got teary-eyed, thanking each individual member of his staff, and he let the media ask the question about one, two, three, but he definitely was ready to answer. He compared uh, the judge's ruling to watching a person hand-build an airplane, telling them it would crash, watching them crash that airplane, and then having a heaping, burning pile of trash on the runway. So uh, he definitely was prepared to say some things about one, two, three, but I think to his credit, he didn't lead with that at, during his press conference. And we can't forget that Jeff DeWitt, as the state treasurer, is the person who was legally responsible for maintaining uh, the land trust fund. This is why this was always kind of a, a concern of his. And, you know, he was somebody who was saying two years ago, not just that he disagreed with Prop 123 and the whole funding mechanism, but also that he had seen a legal opinion on the matter that said, you do need separate congressional approval. 
Um, so he was fully vindicated in that respect as far as the legality of it. And of course, uh, he has always maintained that doing Prop 123 at all uh, was a bad move, that it, it should have been structured differently and could have been done in a way that would not present any uh, future uh, funding cliffs. Dustin, about an hour ago, we got off the phone with Representative Anthony Kern, a Republican from Glendale. He has been pushing for full disclosure of the um, investigative material that was gathered to compile uh, a report done by outside attorneys on allegations of sexual harassment at the House of Representatives. Uh, he confirmed for the first time that he and two other Republican lawmakers met last week with Maricopa County Attorney Bill Montgomery. What did Montgomery tell the group, according to Kern? According to Kern, Montgomery told the group that he's investigating allegations that Brian Townsend, um, at, who at the time of the report, uh, the investigative report, was the fiance of State Representative Michelle Ugenti Rita. Um, Montgomery said that he's investigating allegations that Townsend sent sexually explicit communications to several unidentified individuals and that that might um, potentially violate some laws, specifically revenge porn laws. Why is this significant? This is significant because it shows that the fallout from the sexual harassment investigation um, is, is goes far beyond Don Shooter. Um, you know, Shooter was expelled, and you know a lot of people thought that was sort of the end of this whole um, investigation. But now we're seeing that these other accusations are are still um, drawing attention from law enforcement, um, and we don't know. Um, precisely the nature of these accusations. The report didn't get into a lot of details, but if law enforcement is looking into this, that could be dragged out. Kern, um, shortly after um, the investigative report was released, he staged his own press conference and accused um, uh, Townsend of potentially violating the state's revenge porn law, um, presumably that is what he wants the county attorney's office to investigate. Um, and it does sound as though, you know, if this is a criminal investigation, there will be subpoenas. And that would mean, again, presumably, that investigators would have access to some of these uh, top secret records that have not been released to the media uh, or to other lawmakers who have requested to see this material unredacted. Yeah, and House Speaker J.D. Mesnard has refused repeatedly to release the full records from the investigation. Um, so if there is a subpoena, that might be, um, at this point, one of the only options to get those records released. You two have covered this pretty closely. Um, help me in my understanding. If you violate the revenge porn law, that wouldn't necessarily just be a message, but you would have to have sent a picture, correct? And if that's the case, is that maybe the reason that they're fighting so hard to withhold these records because there's photographs in there? Yeah, I mean, we don't know the precise nature of what was sent, but given the accusation of re revenge porn and descriptions that we've, we've seen in, in the investigative report, it suggests that there probably were explicit images. And Kelly Townsend, who is the House Majority Whip, she introduced legislation. We should actually check to see um, what happened from... Uh, or with that legislation, but her legislation would keep explicit photos, images from sexual 
harassment investigations um, secret. So presumably that would include these communications. Uh, we've heard from folks uh, not involved with the investigation that they are indeed um, uh, images, uh, but we have not been able to confirm that for ourselves. Separately, Kern did tell us that he is going to try to subpoena these records through the Joint Legislative Audit Committee. He is um, chair of that committee. I think they're still trying to understand what the process would look like. It would be interesting if it went through that committee rather than the Ethics Committee. Yeah, typically these sort of proceedings would go through the Ethics Committee, but that's been sort one of the sort of unusual things about this whole sexual harassment investigation from the get-go. When this all started last fall, um, Speaker Mesnard hired an outside law firm, uh, and you know it didn't go through the typical ethics um, proceeding process. And, you know, I think another thing I would add, too, is that I don't think anyone's really specifically pining to see whatever explicit images are out there. I think people, you know, rather than see the images, people want to know what exactly occurred and if there's new accusations that were withheld that we weren't, you know, told about previously. Yeah, and it seems to me that, that lawmakers, some lawmakers, just feel as though they were made to take a vote without having the full information. And that, to me, seems to be what really is driving their request that these materials be made available, if not for public consumption, just for them to go in and be able to review. Yeah, I know, that's right. And earlier this week, there was another action related to this. Um, Representative Todd Clodfelter tried to force a vote on the House floor to release these records. Um, Speaker Mesnard said that his uh, that his motion was not in order. He didn't make the, the correct kind of procedural motion, so that vote didn't occur. It's unclear if he's going to try and force that again. Um, but I think all of this shows that there is a, a group of Republican representatives in the House who are very concerned about what they don't know regarding this investigation. Final segment, we bring you Give Us the Records. Mr. Hansen, who hasn't given you records or answered your phone call? Actually, uh, what I'm trying to do is uh, get access to Debbie Lesko and Harold Tepernani at the same time, which seems to be getting harder and harder these days, uh, just as voters are starting to make up their minds. Uh, it's harder to find these two women together in the same place at the same time. So if they can make that happen, I would be oh so grateful. Ryan? Well, I uh, spent yesterday listening to the governor's office and their echo chamber at the uh, Arizona Commerce Authority, uh, Veraduce Public Relations, and everyone saying how unsecretive the self-driving car industry is here. So I am uh, eagerly awaiting records of how many cars are operating in the state and how many companies are running those cars here and where they run. And Dustin. I've got a month's old request with Secretary of State Michelle Reagan. This is related to her campaign finance website. I asked for records uh, about costs related to that site and the contract that her office had with a company to originally deliver the site. That company um, completed their contract without delivering the site and then her office finished it. So I'm trying to get details of just, you know, what what they were supposed to do and why that didn't get finished in the first go around. Um, still no records on that. That is super ridiculous. And you highlighted that one several weeks ago and you still haven't received them? Uh, several weeks ago, I brought this up <laughs> in, during the podcast. They said they were working on it, but still nothing. So maybe the Secretary of State needs to make it to the end of the podcast <laughs> so that she knows that's what you're looking for. I am still waiting for records from the Department of Administration last 
year, we asked for some underlying materials tied to workplace complaints. We have gotten some investigative material, but we have not still received those records. I find it interesting that they were able to turn around records uh, for Uber. The governor's administration uh, was able to turn around records for The Guardian related to Uber pretty quickly based on their own apparent self-imposed deadline, but they have not been able to uh, compile these records for us nearly a year later. That's it for today. I'm off my soapbox. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. You can find me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. I am at Utility Reporter. I'm at Dustin Gardner, and that's G-A-R-D-I-N-E-R. Thanks to the politics team and also our producers, Haley Sanchez and Carly Henry. Please subscribe to the show and review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week.